0: Thank you. It is so good to sing about the greatness of Jesus with you, and I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, where after a long break, we started this series before COVID hit in March, and we took a significant break, and then now last week we started back in. I summarized chapters 1 and 2, and then we just continue on in the book now what's beautiful about going through books of the bible is that you don't get to tell god what he says and so he has told us what he wants us to understand by giving us his word and so now we run through the book of first peter and we dive in to uh first peter chapter three verses one to seven and so here we find ourselves in what could be a difficult subject For some, subjects like gender and sexuality and men's and women's roles in the church, in the home. This is what Peter addresses right here. And so it is meant to be not something that creates tension, but something that brings clarity on what God says about these issues that brings safety and helps us know how to walk in His ways. As I said in my email, for those of you who are watching online or those of you who are in person, Because of the nature of some of this, there will be certain sections that might get to PG-13. I just want to let you know that, um, and so you can respond as appropriate. But Peter is addressing a crowd under the persecution of Nero, more than likely between the years of 54 to 68 AD, and these Christians are suffering Deep persecution, and if you know much about Roman history, it was the fire of 64 AD that Nero blamed on the Christians, so they are being intentionally attacked for their faith, and they're just confused. I thought that if I trusted in the Lord that things would not go like this, and Peter says don't be surprised that fiery trials are coming your way, and he writes this letter to encourage his people. I summarized chapters 1 and 2 last week with these three ideas. Rejoice in your salvation that God has saved you. Two, live an empowered life of obedience. And three, live with Christ in view. This is kind of where He has brought us to this point. And now I just want to read with us First Peter three one to seven. Pray, and then we'll dive in. So First Peter three one to seven, the Word of God reads as follows: Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. Yes, (laughs) that scared me a little. (laughs) So we're good. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Boom. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that your word is meant for our good to guide us and to help us understand Your heart. And when things seem to run so in the face of culture, we can get so confused. Father, I pray for clarity. I pray that we are near to the heart that You show us, Your heart. I pray that Your kindness would lead us to repentance. I pray that this would not just be a mental exercise of understanding things, but Father, this would be something where our hearts bow to you more and more. For we are all called to submit our lives wholly to you. So meet us in this moment, I pray. Who is sufficient for these things? Not me, not anyone that's listening. You are our great King. And I lean on you now, in Jesus' name, amen. This passage is in the scriptures because homes matter to God. The home matters to God. What's interesting about the home is they reflect our secret lives, right? The home is usually not a public place. They reflect how we act when we let our guard down. They can expose our temperament. Our beliefs, our sinful patterns, our real feelings. Our homes are also a place of opportunity. Opportunity for some of the most intimate, consistent, sacrificial service that we get a chance to participate in. Whether roommates, whether husbands or wives, whether children. This passage, although specifically addressing husbands and wives, should be applicable to singles, to children, to everyone. And as we look here at this passage and we find ourselves reading instructions to husbands and wives, we see four things. One, God's order. Two, culture's disorder. Three, instructions and hope for wives. Four, instructions and hope for husbands god's order culture's disorder instructions and hope for wives and husbands so let's dive in at god's order there is no authority that rivals or supersedes christ and his word i'll say it again there is no authority that supersedes christ and his word he is our God and we wholeheartedly, unashamedly, fully and forever are to follow Him. He is the only authority that has no footnote next to His name. Every other authority has an imperfection, a flaw. But we don't get told, obey God, footnote, unless He gets too angry or asks you to disobey God or isn't considerate. No, no. God is completely perfect in all that He is. There is no footnote. There is no flaw. There are no exceptions. So all of us created beings are created for submission to God. Everyone that's hearing my voice is a submitter. Submitting to God. So now, towards the end of chapter 2, Peter is trying to tell them, how to live their lives in spirit-powered obedience, and he begins to lay out several contexts in which there are authority structures in our world. And those authority structures are given by God for our good, even though those authority structures can have a footnote of imperfection. So, he tells us, earthly citizens have a government that is the authority. Workers have bosses that are the authority. In chapter 5, he says the church has elders which are an authority. And now, he says homes should be reminded that there is an authority structure in the home and husbands are to be leaders in that home. And that's why he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, likewise. Why does he say likewise? Because he is connecting this home setting with all the instructions that He's given before on authority structure. Authority is not a bad word. No matter what anybody tells you. God must be submitted to as our authority and the foundations of our life are built upon submission to God. And we will never enjoy life and the roles that God has given us until we submit our lives to him and embrace the structures he's placed in our midst. Now, I was reading a counselor. Her name is Robin Huck. She is a a counselor with CCEF, and she begins to illustrate this with a story and then some comments. So this is a a little bit of a long quote, okay? But I'm going to give it to you, and let's just kind of follow along. She begins with a story. Story of a woman in a dance studio. That says this, not like that, you idiot. Her sharp words could be heard above the music. Then she stomped off, leaving her husband in the middle of the gym. The rest of us in the dance class were trying to politely ignore the scene. The husband, with a look of exhausted defeat, walked slowly toward the door, picked up their coats and left. I felt so sorry for him, she said. To be married, such a mean and callous woman must be horrible, she says. I leaned towards my husband and whispered, I promise I will never do that to you. And he whispered back, thanks. But his eyes were a little sad as he said it. Carl, her husband, and I have come a long way since these early years of our marriage. By God's grace and mercy, he has changed us. We now have a truly blessed union, but at times we can still hear the echoes of damaging words that we said long ago. There in dance class, Carl was remembering a different circumstance and a different voice. That's my voice, she says, using very similar words. Carl remembered that feeling of exhausted defeat. While he was trying to be a good leader, the person who was supposed to be his biggest encourager, his helper, would often cut him to shreds. What's wrong with you? Can't you just do it the right way? She says, I was a mean and callous woman. And I am still, whenever I forget one of the most important lessons... I've ever learned sinning against people begins with rebelliousness towards God. Now she goes on and she gives a little commentary. She says, let me back up a little bit. The opposite of rebelliousness is submission. So submission is the foundational precept of the Bible. It begins with the premise that God is creator and maintains his right to be in charge of creation. Biblical submission is a choice To surrender yourself to God's purposes. I'll say it again. Biblical submission is a choice, for all of humanity, to surrender yourself to God's purposes. In whatever roles you play in life, parent or child, husband or wife, leader or follower, executive or employee, you are called to submission. God in His good and perfect plan has His authority to give others authority. Thus we are called to submit to those human authorities. Government officials, church leaders, husbands, parents, employers. That's a summary of kind of where we've just been. But submission is also a choice. God confers these roles of helper and head for the purpose of giving God's image bearers the opportunity to display His characteristics and achieve His purposes. And I'm going to finish with this. To to fulfill these roles, we need an attitude of submission and humility. And hear this. Jesus is the hero here. In humble submission, Jesus Christ perfectly performed both the roles of head and helper. His example proves that these roles are equally important and equally reflective of God's character, period. That statement, sinning against people, begins with rebelliousness toward God means anytime I have sinned against my wife or my children or you or a friend. It's because I was rebelling against God. And Peter here in this passage seeks to come alongside his reader in the messiness of life underneath imperfect authority and say, how in the world do we respond when authority isn't acting godlike, how do we respond? How are we supposed to live our lives? Because you can hear Peter addressing some of the most immediate questions. You can hear the wife saying, But what if the husband isn't a good leader? Or worse, he's completely disobeying the word. What do I do then? Peter cares for the wife by giving her instructions. And the husband seems to be asking, But what if I don't understand her or her weaknesses bother me, make it hard to lead? And Peter addresses the husband as well. All because a submissive heart is meant to characterize us all to God. And yet there are authority structures in the world that we must be submissive to. Now, before we get to instructions that he gives to husbands and wives, we must really talk about the elephant in the room. What's the elephant in the room? Peter assumes God's good and right order. He assumes men are husbands and women are wives in a relationship called marriage between one man and one woman for life. He assumes that. And so, if we've seen God's good order of submission to Him, And we have also seen that rebelliousness does not only exist in individuals, but at a cultural level as well. There is cultural disorder. If there's God's order, there is cultural disorder. You've ever heard the story? You know, it's that story where you put the frog in the pot of water, and then you heat the water up, and it doesn't really know it's getting hot. And then all of a sudden it's boiled to death. Have you heard that story? You know, it got so hot that it boiled the frog to death. The point of this story is that we've got to warn when the water's getting too hot. And when it comes to gender and sexuality, we need to be told that the water is too hot. The culture is telling us a lie. We are being lied to and our children are being lied to. Our culture has rebelled against God's good order and has replaced His purposes for wicked alternatives. Let's take gender for example, as if we didn't need to have more controversial things talked about these days. You look online, on the websites, healthline.com has 64 terms that describe gender identity and expression. On Facebook, you have at least 58 different gender options for Facebook users. The message is gender is a choice. That's the message. Gender is a choice. And that's why you see many, the trans community becoming more and more popular is because we are being told that gender is a choice the same is being championed regarding sexuality. In one sense, you are told you are how you feel. But in another sense, you are told to choose according to those feelings. However you feel, you choose. That's what should determine your sexuality. There is no outside objective standard. But yet we know there is. Culture has told us, it's okay, it's not uncommon these days for people to change their sexual desires and to choose between gay and straight and bisexual and pan, and the list goes on. Because it's a choice. Gender's a choice. Sexuality is a choice. And it's up to how you feel. There is no right and wrong. It's built upon this loose sense of your feeling determines what is right and good. And friends, this is why a few weeks ago I fought so hard to make a true statement that black lives do matter and yet reject an organization. Because the organization, the organization has at its core a worldview that is opposed to God. Of course, black lives do matter, precious in God's sight. And it grieves my heart that several black lives have suffered and suffered unjustly, and they deserve our support. But the Black Lives Matter movement has hijacked the response. As if we can only respond with their worldview. Hear me, its messaging explicitly affirms gender fluidity, Sexual fluidity, fluidity. it rejects the nuclear family, it rejects one man, one woman for life, and the organization says, quote, we foster a queer affirming network freeing ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. Dear friends, we cannot as a church allow real issues of poverty and pain and injustice for black and brown individuals to be taken over by such a group. Our response must be biblical. This kind of perversion and distortion is of the devil and not of God. This is an injustice to families, to generations to come, and most of all to God's good design. For children to be told that it's their choice on what gender they are creates massive insecurity. It creates confusion. And it rejects what God has said through His design and through His good word. And we're being told it's their choice what sexual orientation they prefer. Be true to yourself while all the time you're denying God's good order and design. John Daly with Focus on the Family says, we are not editors of the book, but followers of the book. We don't have the privilege to edit and cut out what we don't like. It's easier for me not to preach 1 Peter 3 1 to 7. It's just easier. But I'm so thankful. God has told us what's important. And so, dear friends, we must, we must understand that God's word is true. And when He tells us clear things like His divine order, we must submit to it. The Judges, the book of Judges, tells us when you do what is right in your own eyes, this is the result. You want to read a disturbing book in the Bible? Read Judges from cover to cover. It's painful. Now hear me, please. Those who struggle with these ideas... Those who struggle with same sex attraction don't allow such a clear statement to keep you from sharing your confusion and your struggles and your feelings and your experience with us. We have to say what is true and create safe boundaries. The Bible lays down guardrails, so to speak, to protect the car of your life from driving off a dangerous cliff. That's what we're seeking to do. But don't by any means think that we don't care about you. It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And we want to know you and to talk to you. We need each other and we need the power of the Spirit to help us live happy and obedient lives. So don't close off. Let's talk. Because the culture has made this so acceptable. There will be more and more people struggling with all of this confusion. We have to understand we are a product of an overly sexualized culture. And that has become the end of relationships rather than friendship. So, Peter assumes God's good and right order. He is not assuming all will marry. But he is assuming that when marriage does happen, he assumes man, the men are the husbands, women are the wives in a relationship called marriage between one man, one woman for life. And so now he gives instructions. He gives instructions and hope for wives and instructions and hope for husbands. Thanks for sticking with it so far. I appreciate that. Really do. (laughs) Glad we're in it together. (laughs) Number three, instructions and hope for wives. The passage says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Remember what we said at the beginning. Submission is not first about your external actions. It's about a condition of the heart. Most people try to Make submission first about how we act and not first about how we submit our hearts to God and delight in his good order. And just remember, Robin Huck says biblical submission is a choice to surrender yourself to God's purposes. And so maybe rather than this, this this subject has taken a label at times of headship and submission, and I think the categories that were introduced in the quote that I gave you before, headship and help, helper are the better categories because we all are submissive with different roles. Headship, leading, helper, encourager, follower. Jesus took both roles, both equally glorious. But the untainted by sin picture of the world is this. Men and women are equally significant and precious to God. Can I please get an amen? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's what I want. Feedback. Come on. Here we go. I can see it running now. They are equally able to be saved. In Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free. That does not mean ethnicity or gender or your title at work are unimportant to God. No, it means all the benefits of Calvary are equally yours whether you are male or female by faith alone. The love of God. For God so loved the world He gave His only Son for anyone who would trust in Him. There's no greater blessing, no greater gifts, no greater empowerment, no greater strength, no greater joy, no greater grace given to any specific ethnicity, any gender over another. Men and women of all ethnicities and social classes are equally valuable because they are made in the image of God. They bear His imprint. And therefore, they should be treated as such. Equally valuable and beautiful. However, there are perversions, are there not? There is mistreatment out there, and that's why Peter addresses right here, so that even if some do not obey the word, what's that mean? Husbands, there are times when they don't obey the word, times when they are not living according to God's standards. It says they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives. This does not mean women cannot express their hurt or frustration in marriage. Not at all. Some of the greatest moments of change in my life have come when my sweet wife came to me and spoke up about things that she observed in my life. A tone. A demeanor. A pattern. This is not don't speak. This is, let your conduct be louder. Let your actions and your life be so loud that it wins Him over in His disobedience. What does it mean that men disobey the Word? Well, a lot of the things we talked about last week, they cannot be sober-minded or self-controlled. They can be angry or given to lust or addiction. Some men objectify women viewing them as an object to be had rather than a person to be loved and we need to repent of it. Whether it's in person or whether it's behind closed doors on a computer God is calling us to something better. To view women as people to love. Historically it had become permissible. There's a little bit of a new wave now, but permissible in the workplace or to have locker room talk and to gawk and make inappropriate comments that further the narrative that women are objects. That is against God's design. And it mocks equality that God has given us all because we are in His image. Some men have chosen to view women as people to dominate rather than people made in the image of God to learn from. And believe it or not, some men don't listen well. Might be news to some of you, probably only the men, but that can hurt. Some men are dismissive, whether they hear of women being demeaned or claiming misogyny or being abused, sometimes men dismiss women as being extreme or hating on men. Some men try to cover up or disregard the abuse or the pain rather than listening and investing in grieving and addressing. If any of this describes any of you men, especially you husbands in the home, we must repent. And women, if any of you have experienced this, our Savior cares. And this church cares. And I am sorry. The church must be a place that cares for the abused, both men and women. Pastors here would love to care for you. We even have deacons of counseling, Josh and Tracy Gallagher. We have men and women in this church that care and in community want to listen to you and to connect you to resources, to counseling and beyond. We must disciple one another in everyday life so that the home is not a place of fear, but a place where Jesus is seen a place of peace. Domestic abuse stats are off the charts during COVID. It grieves my heart. We need to create a space here at the church where these kind of painful things can be brought to light. And the church shows that we care. We stand up for that kind of injustice. So when Peter says, win him over without a word, by your respectful and pure conduct, he is not saying, stay in an abusive relationship at all costs. No, the Bible provides grounds for biblical divorce that would be adultery and abandonment by an unbeliever, which I include underneath that Abuse. But we must understand the culture has made divorce all too common. When Jesus taught on divorce and remarriage, the exceptions were so strict and the the call for endurance was so great that his followers literally said, if this is the case, is it better not to marry at all? Because just like in our culture, divorce was common hat. There are stories that men could divorce women for just burning food. I mean, we are talking, this whole idea was just all perverted because sin is in our world. However, as Peter is calling for endurance, we must understand. We must understand. The call here is for wives to live their life in such conduct that it wins over these men. It shows them a different picture of how not to disobey the Word. But... On the other hand, men don't have a corner on sin. True? Yes, that's true. Come on, why was that so hard? Men don't have a corner on sin. Men and women are equal in that they are all sinners. Some women have perverted God's good design too. Some have objectified men. If not for looks, then for security. For these women, men are means to physical pleasure or financial or emotional security rather than a person to be loved. Be careful. Some women place the wrongs of abuse and misogyny and domination by some men on all men. And this strips women and men of their God-given equality. Some women can be demeaning or overly critical and condescending toward their husbands or men in general. And this is why Peter says in the text, win them over by the conduct of their life with respect and pure conduct. And then he says, where do you get the fuel to fight against your sin, wives? He says, do not let your adorning be external. See verse three there? The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, for those of you in this room who might have braided hair or gold jewelry or are wearing clothing, it's okay. Especially the last one I'm thankful for. It just shows that this is not telling you not to do those things, but to prioritize The inner person. The culture had an obsession over the clothing and the braiding of hair and the jewelry. And our culture can as well. And here Peter says, if you're going to work hard on your adorning, work on the heart. Work on the heart. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle And quiet spirit. Now, you might not see it there, but this right here is one of the most remarkable places in the scripture that highlights the unique value of women. Because the word gentle right here in this passage is only used in three other places. One, it's to describe, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth in the Beatitudes. That's blessed are the gentle. The second idea is when Jesus is riding in on a donkey. In Zechariah chapter 9, 9 is quoted. He says the king is coming to you gentle or humble, mounted on a donkey. And then in Matthew chapter 11, when he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. For the yoke is easy and burden is light. I am gentle and lowly in heart. So just hit rewind a second. Jesus describes His heart as gentle and lowly and the only other place He uses in all of the New Testament to use those same words is when He describes the woman here in 1 Peter 3. The wife is meant to be a picture to all of humanity of the gentleness of the Savior's heart. There's a uniqueness there that seems to be attached here. When our Savior is said, He is meek and humble and gentle. Dane Ortland, in his book Gentle and Lowly, says Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointing finger, but open arms. This is what is a unique gift of women to men. Is to show the gentleness of the Savior's heart. And so fight for that gentleness. Adorn yourself by being still before the Lord. And prizing that over your external beauty. Because that gentle and quiet heart is precious in God's sight, the text says. Look at verse 5. For this is how holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. So now the the adornment is not only internal, but it affects how you live. And there was a glad-hearted following of their servant-hearted, loving leader husbands. They were helpers. They were encouragers of his leadership. And he gives an example of Sarah. And Sarah obeyed him, calling him Lord. I'm not recommending that wives call their husbands Lord. Okay? Don't think that that's what's being commanded here. It is a term of respect that was understood then as such. The point is not the phrase Lord. The the point is respect. Wives are meant to respect his leadership. And biblical submission has nothing to do with mindless obedience. I'll say it again. This is a quote from Robin Huck. Biblical submission has nothing to do with mindless obedience. Because Jesus Christ was both head and helper. Head does not mean more competent. The husband is not more competent. It doesn't mean he's smarter. It doesn't mean he's of more value. In many cases, the wife will have equally strong or stronger leadership gifts, decision-making skills, intelligence, and experience. Peter's point is, use all of that God has given you, all the gifts and all the abilities that God has given you to be an encourager and a helper to your husband's leadership. Wives are challenged to live their lives for the eyes of Christ. To make your eyes and ears and your mouth and your hands and your feet submissive to Christ and wives in the home. Be an encourager, a helper to the leadership of your husband. Now, I think if we go on now, we need to look at the last one. And that is instructions and hope for husbands. Look at verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Interestingly, he did not address um, the ones who are in leadership in the previous examples, but he does for the home and for the church. He addresses the elders in chapter 5. And here he addresses the husbands. Husbands, likewise... It says, dwell. Make your life in such a way, a life that is according to knowledge. That's the literal. According to understanding. Make your home with your wife an understanding life. What would it mean to know your wife? To understand her and to live with her according to knowledge. Well, first of all, Husbands, it means you know your God. It means you know your God. You're still with Him. You're allowing Him to shape your life. You're listening to Him. It also means that you seek to know her. You listen to her. You're attentive to her needs. You care for her. Her concerns are your concerns. And you prize her and honor her. And that's why he goes on to say, showing honor, this is how you live with her in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. Live according to knowledge as to a weaker vessel. Now, the word weakness in the Scriptures according to Paul, is something to boast in. I boast in my weakness because that's where Christ's strength is made perfect. But the word weakness here is attached to the word vessel, which should be understood as the body. And so, what he seems to be highlighting here is a general difference in physical strength. Now, why would he mention that? Well, before I answer that question... Some want to say that women are more emotional than men. They want to say emotions are a feminine trait. Jen Wilkins notes, Have you ever watched Saturday or Sunday football with a guy? You can't tell me he doesn't have emotions. It's just different. Jackie Hill Perry states it this way, To be emotional is not a feminine trait. It is what it means to be human. To have emotions. These might be expressed in different ways. But I do not believe it's biblical to say women are more emotional than men. Our emotions are different. and Sometimes we attach, because of our culture, certain things to what it means to be masculine and feminine that the Bible does not attach. Sometimes we will say, men... Don't cry. Stop it. Be a man. This is where we need to define masculinity and femininity by the Bible, not by culture. For many, crying is a sign of weakness. Now, I don't think that we need to show our, or we need to go around with this sense of failing to endure and walking around in self pity and walking around complaining and whining. But when you experience deep loss or experience full joy, It's not feminine to cry. Jesus wept. We need to make sure our kids know this. Don't scream and wail over something simple like bumping your arm. Come on, let's go, let's move it on. But don't discourage all crying for boys or men. might be interpreted as feminine. That's a lie. And so here he says... Weaker vessel seems to highlight a general difference in physical strength, not worth, value, purpose, significance, gifting, or anything else. So why does Peter say this? Because if the temptation for women is to disrespect his poor leadership or constantly critique him or give up on enduring in the marriage, the temptation for the husband is to look at physical weakness and act superior and demean Or try to dominate and control physically and abuse. Men, husbands, God sees how you and I treat our wives in private. And this passage is meant to make you shake at any mistreatment you might have participated in. And is meant to lead you to repentance. And an apology. And a resolve to follow Jesus. We must take an earnest look at ourselves on how we treat our spouses. Repent of demeaning talk and attitudes that make you seem better than she is. Repent of aggressive tones and a failure to be gentle with her. Repent. this passage says live with her in an understanding way show honor to her as the weaker vessel why because we're fellow heirs of the grace of life fellow heirs of the grace of life what's interesting about that phrase (laughs) fellow heirs of grace we all need grace on that last day men nor women will need more grace than the other we all are going to need grace in order to be ushered into the presence of God. And so we set our hope fully on that last day as fellow heirs of grace needers. We need His help. And that's the grid, those are the lenses through which husbands are meant to see their wives. They are precious to be honored, to be made flourish to listen to be cared for focus on that last day grace and so when he says show honor to her as a fellow heir of the grace of life you need to prize her men may and my prayer is that god would use this passage to move us from fighting Against one another to fighting for one another in our homes. We have this ladder that hangs in our home and it's just made out of old wood and we kind of put it together ourselves and it has several old pictures sitting on it. And the frames that we have those old pictures on, they're from the dollar store. (laughs) I mean, there are times that those frames have just literally broken just, you know, by just barely touching these things. So, But they're pictures of our family in generations gone by that mean so much to us. And we are stern when a child runs through and is casual with that ladder and starts knocking something off. Because those pictures are precious to us. We don't want them treated casually or carelessly. They're in a place of honor in our house so that they can be seen and enjoyed. And if anything happens to them, we work hard to bring repair and careful attention to. Why? Because we honor those people in those pictures. Husbands, your wife is meant to have a place of honor, care, special attention, protection, made much of, celebrating, protecting her. There need to be times when husbands, you say, kids, you don't talk to your mom that way. You don't talk to anybody that way, but you don't talk to your mom that way. Because husbands need to live with their wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to her as the weaker vessel so that as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Now husbands, I write this. (laughs) I say this. I put this out here for us because I'm deeply aware of my failures. My lack of gentleness. My time when I did not prize my wife as I should. Times when I did not listen to her well. And times when I was defensive. And Peter reminds us that on that last day, but also in the here and now, we're going to receive grace. All of our lives are according to mercy. All of our lives are in need of desperate help. But he assumes, right here, husbands, in the midst of your failure, it should be driving you to prayer. What is characteristic of a husband's leadership is that he is a prayer-filled man. Look at what it says. So that your prayers may not be hindered. It assumes you're praying. It assumes that. And it assumes that the husband would be devastated. To have his prayers hit a wall and not be answered. Because of how he is treating his wife. It assumes that. Peter is saying there is a direct connection to your prayer life. And how you treat your spouse. And it is meant to stir up husbands not to defeat but to resolve. God help me be a man of prayer. Help me be a man of prayer. And as we say in our staff regularly, prayer is not just a ministry of the church, it's how we do ministry. Prayer is not just an aspect of our lives, it's how we live our lives. We walk praying because we become more and more aware that we are needy. And if you want prayer to grow, you will become aware of two things. One, your sinfulness and weakness, which I think this passage is kind of grilled into all of us. But also, an awareness of God's love and power, and grace. Not just on the last day, but in the right here and right now. The cross screams, I love you and I will never leave you. And the promises that He is always interceding for you means that He did not just justify you and make you His and then leave you on your own, but every moment of every day He is interceding for you. And the Psalms pour out that says He is catching all of your tears to let you know that He's right there with you when you're hurting. Our God has not left you. And His love is full, as full as it was on the day He died for you, it is full right now for you. So husbands and wives, singles, children, walk in the grace of God. And He says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He says, all those who come to me, I'll never cast out. He says, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace and find help in time of need. So if you're like me, and you battle with failures, insecurities, and difficulties, come to a Savior who loves you and gave His life for you, that you may find rest in your soul, and then your life looks different, and you communicate the love of Jesus in your home and beyond. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask that you would take the difficulties of all of these things, and you would help. Husbands to lead with servant-hearted, sacrificial, lay your life down like Christ laid His life down for the church kind of love for their wives. Father, please, make husbands men of prayer. Remove the temptation, I pray, O God, and create an awareness right now with those husbands who are aggressive and who don't listen well and who are not treating with respect their wives father make these things clear bring them up so that god abuse would stop so that mistreatment would stop so that disobedience to your word would stop father please come And father i pray for wives that god you would help them help them to endure To be kind and gentle, to live as a helper and encourager to their husband's leadership, not one who drags down. God, I just pray that our homes, through just having this discussion, would become a less critical place and we become a place of grace. Father, please make our homes a place of grace. Where we overlook offenses. But where we also, after looking at our own hearts, we lovingly talk about the things that are destroying lives. Father, please, may our conduct reflect your love. May we be known as gentle. Father, I ask that you would help us to hope in you. We are not left alone as hard as all of this is. I pray that we leave with the greatest sense right now that there is hope in Calvary. You would not have put this in there if there wasn't hope for our homes. And so, Lord, I just pray that as sure as Jesus is raised from the dead, we would have a hope, a living hope in the midst of a dying world that our homes can be different. Help us, I pray. Help us, I pray, to submit our lives holy to you. I just want to take a minute or so for you to process in this spirit of prayer and then we will stand and join in in singing together. But right now, you just spend some time in reflection of maybe one or two things that God has laid upon your heart be on the table and we say yes I will follow you I will do what you've asked me to do Father I pray I pray you would be strong where we are weak you would bring peace where there is fear you would bring healing where there might have been years of addiction or mistreatment. I pray that you would bring repentance. And as a result, you would bring refreshment. Move in our midst, I pray. In Christ's name.